Each of the evenings, we <coughs> offer a talk, which is really an exploration for our retreat of metta, of some of the ways that metta works, some of the challenges that come up in metta practice. And the, uh, the aim really is to partly to help give a, a larger map of metta practice, partly to energize, uh, partly to inspire. And the um, suggestion we often give is to listen with your whole bodies and hearts. The talks are recorded and they're available uh, after the retreat to be, to be listened to again. And so the suggestion is to let it, let, let the talks, as it were, uh, touch your being. And not so much to remember every point or to necessarily take really careful notes, but really let the talks um, have an impact, really, on your, on, your, on your being. What I'd like to explore tonight is the nature of the transformative process in metta practice. In particular, what some of the uh, challenges are of metta practice and what some of the qualities are that are developed in metta practice. What some of the sometimes subtle processes of transformation are. And I want to uh, appreciate this first day of practice. Even those who've done 10 or 20 retreats know that the first day is challenging. How many people found today at least sometimes challenging? And we'll we'll explore some of what those challenges are and and, and some ways to work with those challenges. But just to know that it's very uh, natural and not particularly a problem for reasons we've already given, that people, we come into the retreat often having been really uh, um, half crazy in order to become more sane at the retreat. And uh, always reminds me of the quotations about Gandhi. You know, uh, one of the people in Gandhi's community used to joke that uh, it takes a lot of money to keep Gandhi in poverty. (laughs) The whole entourage and a huge operation, and Gandhi, you know, just had a few possessions, but really depended on these other people. So, just like that, retreats often the chance to really settle, to go more deeply, to explore quiet, often depends on somewhat manic activity right before we enter into that process, and and it takes a little while to settle down. So, first, a little bit about the spirit of metta, a little bit more, then some about the challenges, and then some about how some of the transformative processes uh, work in metta. Um, So, this practice is this very simple practice, in a way, of intending to bring out our kindness, moment by moment. The intention to bring out our warmth, our kindness, our, our friendliness, remembering that the, the core meaning of metta 
has to do with this expansive friendliness, this expansive, warm, active friendliness. And we continually do that. Uh, It's a very simple, beautiful practice. Remembering the lines at the beginning of the Metta Sutta, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. This bringing out of the bringing out of the kind heart, and we need, in a way, to train ourselves because we have had that good heart, um, in a sense, covered over. And I think we know that through through our lives we have had experiences where we've maybe had that good heart out there and been hurt or been attacked or not felt safe to have the heart there or been criticized or ridiculed or we've been led over time to abandon ourselves, often doing the best we could, always almost doing the best we could. And in a way we are um, relearning our birthright here in this very simple, direct way. It's a beautiful poem by uh, Galway Cannell that has uh, the lo- very beautiful lines and a very wonderful lines. It's called St. Francis and the Sow. And in the poem, uh, St. Francis teaches a sow how beautiful it is and has the lines, everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing, its loveliness. To put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. That's our practice, really. Along the way, we discover the ways that we may have... um, had that heart, had our hearts uh, covered over. And so there's, there's a, a process that's, that's challenging to, to see what stands in the way of metta and to bring out that, that quality of metta. Well, we sometimes talk about that as Spring was saying, uh, I think last night, as a purification process. And you know, that's one of the concepts that we sometimes use to help us understand the process of metta. So what is metta? There was a wonderful series of quotations uh, which was presented as children being asked, what is the nature of love and giving their answer. We found this on the internet, so you never know if it's true. You know, it could be some housewife in Schenectady, New York, making all this up. But I think it's true. It sounds true. Anyway, this is uh, Karen, age seven, answering the question, what is love? When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. So that's metta. You can see, we can feel those stars coming out, you know, and the, the, uh, the eyelashes move. The finding of our sages and teachers is that metta practice works 
because our basic nature is that of love and kindness. And that actually what covers it over is more shallow, even if it can feel very strong. And we also um, find that interestingly, I've, I've been very interested in looking at situations that bring that out. And one of the situations that brings out that core kindness is actually very difficult situations. We find that when we are in situations where people are in need or hurting, that often the very quick and natural response when we're not scared, when we're not in fear where there's not violence, is this incredible kindness. In most of the crises that I can think of that I've been in in my life, when there were crises, people responded beautifully. And there's a a very wonderful story that I heard from uh, a friend of mine who died about two years ago named Tom Potterfield, who was a very wonderful man. He was one of my students and he became the president of uh, Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Menlo Park. And he was quite beloved as the president. And he... Um, developed a cancer when he was quite young, in his, in his 50s. And he eventually died of that cancer. Um, and he found that time of his uh, being with the cancer, a time of tremendous growth. But he also found tremendous kindness all the time. You know? And this is, this is something he wrote uh, I think about four or five months before he died. The past few months, the past few weeks, I should say, have been tough. The chemo treatments take a lot of willpower to navigate. In addition to knocking me down physically, they also bring on an emotional and spiritual darkness that drags me to the borderlands, a dry, barren, lonely place of scarred memories, dead tiredness and frayed hopes. It takes all my strength to grind through it and not give up into the temptation to give up, which gets very strong after five or so days of heavy chemo side effects. My work is always a great help with this by dragging me out of my head to focus on something far more important than me. I am so grateful for that aspect of my life. And also I have found that almost every time something wonderful comes along to restore hope, Sometimes it is just uh, his wife Donna's smile or his daughter Katie's loving presence. Sometimes it is a beautiful vista with some happy cows or horses. (laughs) It could be one of my canine buds giving an especially sweet and enthusiastic greeting or a student doing well and having a great experience. And sometimes it is something more dramatic and amazing. This past week I had a big problem. I have a pick line, a small tube that is threaded through a vein from my arm across my chest to my heart. It prevents damage to my veins from the chemo infusions. Sounds creepier than it is. Uh, On Sunday evening, the damn thing broke and I had to go to the emergency room. Of course, the specialist in such things wasn't on duty and I had to wait in the ER until Monday morning. I was pretty miserable. It was yet another reminder of how far from normal my life is how much the disease has overtaken my life and limited it. I was feeling down and sorry for myself. I felt spiritually dry. I prayed for some lightness and joy to come to me and to feel reconnected to my spiritual life. 
During the night in the ER, a janitorial staffer came into my room to remove the trash bin. I said hello and our eyes connected for just a fraction of a second. Jose left the room and came back with two heated blankets and proceeded to tuck me in very gently and carefully. He then told Donna, his, his wife, and me about his own struggles and how people praying for him saved his life. We talked about faith and hope and then he went on his way. A brief and lovely moment that lifted my spirits and made me very thankful. There are amazing people everywhere and sometimes they rise up to give a hand when you need them most. It is good to try to be a person like that. And we find that uh, there's a very, uh, there's a very interesting in many ways powerful book written by a woman who lives in San Francisco named Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a, she wrote a book called A Paradise Built in Hell. Has anyone read that? Some of you know about that. It's a, it's a study of mostly of natural disasters, although I think also of what happened after 9-11. And basically she found that uh, contrary to popular conceptions, the overwhelmingly most common response to those disasters is kindness and help. Again, when there's not a situation of violence, when people can just be there and help. And uh, one of my favorite passages in the book is about the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And this is from uh, Dorothy Day, actually, who was, you know, the great uh, founder of Catholic Worker, uh, spiritually grounded social activist, who did great work, started the hospitality houses all across the country. Very amazing, a wonderful film in her life. And she was, uh, she grew up in Oakland and she was eight years old when the earthquake occurred. She was born in 1898. And this is what she said later about the earthquake. What I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterward. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped in Idora Park and the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. <laughs> Interesting, right? <laughs> Very, very interesting, but it brought out. And, and I find that, you know, it's when things get, uh, when the busyness sometimes gets stripped away and there's just that immediate need. We have that very clear vision and our hearts are good, right? And we're, I guess our practice is intending for that not just to be there in crises. <laughs> So we would say our practice is intending to lead to the statement while the crisis lasted and even after it was over, people loved each other. <laughs> right? that's, our, that's our intention. And we know that this is a training, you know, and we'll get in a moment to some of the, the challenges of the practice, but this is a training that we really carry out moment to moment. 
It's a gradual process. And it really, the Dalai Lama once said, you should measure spiritual practice about every five years, <laughs> right? And so it's a gradual process, but what we're hoping is that we have the training here so we uh, fall in love with metta and metta falls in love with us and it becomes more of a force in our lives and that we take it back and we bring it into our lives and the world for ourselves, for others. That's really, that's really why we're here. And yet we know by, I think even by what we've experienced today, that this calling forth of the kind heart is challenging. Today, I'm sure many of us had a number of different challenges and I heard these in the group, you know, and I could feel them even in myself at times, um, that there was, uh, there were moments of distraction, of not being able to be present. Anyone experienced that today? There were moments in which we maybe were um, irritated or felt anger or irritation. We're cultivating love and we feel some irritation. How many experienced that? Some. Or we may have been, uh, been there and just not been able to concentrate. The mind can't stay with the metta. How many, how many felt that at times? So we could sometimes be sleepy. How many were sleepy? <laughs> and then the other side of sleepiness is sort of overly active and maybe feeling restless. How many people felt restless at times? Okay. Um, how many people at some point started to doubt either themselves or this whole practice of metta? <laughs> no. You know, we, I sometimes uh, joke to myself, you know, we have this wonderful promises. You'll come here, you'll develop the radiant heart. And then you come here and it's the phrases all day long. Right? And so, you say, what is this? You know, I think maybe I should develop love in some other way. <laughs> you know? and, and so just to recognize that those, those challenges are there, and there's a, very, there's a very nice model, which many of you, I think, are quite familiar with, which is, uh, in Pali, it's the, the nivarana, which is usually translated as the hindrances. It's probably better translated as the difficult energies. And these are the energies which make it harder to stay with the practice, to be here, to concentrate. And, but it's, a, it's very helpful because it names some of the challenges. I want to go over these briefly, because it's useful to know, first of all, that everything that was just being reported is normal, it comes with the territory, and it's all workable. And as Spring was saying, very likely uh, by the end of the retreat, you will, uh, some of these will be uh, gone and the experience will be quite different. But this first day is admittedly challenging. So just to know that and um, as usual in our practice, uh, we, we really counsel just stay with the practice and be very careful about the stories you tell yourself about what's happening. <laughs> right? When I work one-on-one with people, that is the single most common counsel that I give. Watch the stories that you tell yourself. They can lead to suffering, they can get into trouble, and they're almost always untrue. 
So this list of the difficult energies uh, is a good way to notice and to uh, be able to name what's happening. The first is that there can be uh, a strong desire or wanting. The second is more the energy of aversion. The irritation could be anger, could be even uh, a very a very strong aversion. The third is sleepiness and um, low energy. The fourth is restlessness. And the fifth is doubt. And for each of these, it's really important just to know that they're happening. Sometimes we can actually um, respond in certain ways which are skillful in terms of those uh, states. And mostly they tend to shift as the concentration deepens and as we uh, really stay with the practice. So the first is this quality of uh, the mind being very active and wanting and wanting something. And, and it's actually said that uh, it's important to, to know this one because uh, sometimes there's a quality of love or um, warmth which can have that quality of strong wanting. And in the in the um, tradition, there's a very, very helpful and subtle teaching called the teaching of the near enemies, or the, we sometimes call, call it the near opposites, that there are qualities of the awakened heart which have almost uh, imposter-like uh, imitations of them. And this is a teaching that's given in terms of the different states of the heart, such as loving kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity. And the, the state of the heart that sometimes looks like love or looks like metta is a possessive or needy quality of love. I think we all know that, right? That at times our metta or love will get mixed with that kind of neediness. And we wanna watch that. We wanna look for that quality of wanting. Because in a sense, the, the true or authentic quality of metta is a little more unconditional. It's a little more just, it's almost the quality of the open presence of the heart. And so we want to track and notice when the metta seems somewhat possessive, needy, grabbing, you know, whether here or, or in daily life. And what we can do with that particular uh, quality is we can, um, we can watch it. Just the naming of it goes a very, a very uh, long way. Um, we can notice when it appears. Sometimes, it, you know, for some of us who are in the um, helping professions, our metta or our love may sometimes take the form of wanting something from the other person, right? And we say, oh, I'm full of love. And as long as you act in this way, <laughs> Right, and and so we want to we want to track that, and so we can um, we can notice that we can um, really try to develop, try to see that, and see if we can, in a sense, let go of that quality of uh, neediness or possessiveness, and really work with the quality of metta. We can notice if we have expectations. We can notice again what our stories are. 
in our in our own in our own minds. Uh, the second challenge to metta is actually closer to what is sometimes called the far enemy or the far opposite, the the opposite of metta, which is more the quality of of hatred or a kind of hostility, which is really the opposite. And it's a little more, a little more obvious. And we can really uh, work with that again by, uh, by noticing it. We, may, we can see the different forms that that appears in. Sometimes it can be uh, just uh, a kind of irritation or uh, anger arising in the mind. And we notice it, we work with it, we can be mindful. The metta itself can be an antidote often to that quality. Um, we may notice it appearing as the judgmental mind, being judgmental of self or judgmental of others. And I'll talk more about that, about that later. And so uh, the noticing is really crucial. Having some um, kind of uh, balance with whatever's occurring is helpful. In metta practice, again, if some of these are occurring we just notice them. If they're, if they're there for a while, we notice them and let them go. If they're there for a longer time, we might work with them with mindfulness and we might want, want to really stay with them, see what's there, go into them. And there can be some, often some kind of release of that kind of, of, that kind of energy. The, the third of these challenging states is uh, sleepiness. The translation in the cl- from the classical text is sloth and torpor. And this is the quality of uh, low energy uh, can be, can manifest in terms of our meta practice as forgetting the phrases, even though we've been repeating them like <laughs> 600 times already today. And what was that phrase? It's really interesting how that happens. I once did a, a five week meta retreat, you know, where, you know, like 18 hours a day meta. And sure enough, at times, three weeks into the retreat, what are my phrases? <laughs> Even though they had been repeated so often. So, and we can also experience what are sometimes called meta models, where you know where you get your phrase wrong. It's often a good sign of sleepiness or lack of focus. Like uh, for a long time, um, one of my phrases was "May I be happy and contented," and so sometimes it would appear as "May I be happy and cemented." Another time, my phrases may I be free from harm, and the, the, the meta phrase appeared as may I be free from form. <laughs> or sometimes it would be may I be, mm, and we forget what we are, are wishing. So we can, sometimes we have contests for the best, best meta models, you know, but they're, they're interesting and they're kind of. Uh, um, another one I remember was. May I be free from, from something? <laughs> so, so what to do with uh, sleepiness? Um, in the hall, we can stand up. Uh, we should know that uh, sleepiness or tiredness can be the result of really needing sleep, as is more common for the first day. It can also be there sometimes when we just get quiet. And we have an association of closing the eyes with, guess what? And often, in, uh, often it's just a getting used to the going inward. And there can, we can have the sleepiness manifest. 
Sometimes sleepiness is a, a sign of some kind of resistance to something that wants to manifest. Sleepiness can, can sometimes be there. And so we can do different things. Of course, if we're truly tired, we can take naps. Naps are a major form of metta practice. <laughs> and uh, we can uh, stand up in the hall. If we have a sense that the tiredness may be more due to uh, some other issue, you can sometimes, sometimes we can be tired when there's an imbalance of um, energy and concentration when there's more concentration than energy. And then we can do something energetic. We can take more uh, vigorous walks, you know. Um, Jack Kornfield uh, was told when he was meditating in Thailand at the monastery to uh, sit at the edge of a well that dropped down 50 feet. And that, that took care of his sleepiness. So. <laughs> um, as, as Spring said this morning, we can also... Uh, Sometimes open the eyes, helps with the energy, stand up, be a little more vigorous in the walking. Mostly just stay with it. And that can, that, can be, that can be workable. The other side of sleepiness is restlessness. When that, that's often when there, the imbalance of energy and concentration goes the other way. When there is a lot more energy in the system, which sometimes happens in meditation, and the uh, concentration is less. So in that situation, we can sometimes really give a little more focus to um, uh, increasing concentration. To, um, we, may, we may name the thinking process a little bit more. Uh, so we can sometimes, if we're uh, feeling that restlessness from the energy being more, we can... Uh, we can develop the concentration by really staying with the phrases, really staying with the metta. And then the last, the last of the uh, difficult energies is doubt, which often can be doubt about oneself or doubt about, is this practice for me? And again, in all of these, what's especially helpful is just to name them, just to be with them. Here, the counsel really is to stay with the practice. Know that doubt will come and go. Uh, if there's doubt about self, we can watch that. Some Very good sometimes to name these if they're occurring and to, uh, to stay, stay with it. Um, one, of, one of the benefits of our groups is that we get a sense that all of the challenges of metapractice are really quite universal, that most of us share all of these practices. And it's one of the benefits of being at a retreat, hearing other people. We can really have the sense that you know, basically our minds and hearts and bodies are pretty much the same. You know, we're in a culture where we want to be so individualistic, you know, and be so different and, you know, um, wear different clothes. How many of you are wearing different clothes every day to the retreat, even though we're looking down most of the time? <laughs> okay. So anyway, we, have, we, we, we can have this sense that actually we're quite similar and we, everyone has, has these kind of challenges. Just to know that is very, very helpful. So working with those kind of challenges can be, um, is really part of the practice, especially the first day, the second day. And as we go uh, further in the practice, we start to have certain, uh, certain qualities start developing in our meta practice. And I wanna talk about those for the rest of the evening. I want to talk about several qualities. One is, as we develop further in the meta practice, 
we learn to lead with our hearts more. That's a way that I like to point to what develops in metta practice. We learn to lead with the heart. We learn to be there, to meet experience, to meet others more with the heart. That's some of what develops when we just stay with the practice. We also develop in concentration. The mind becomes more stable, more settled. The mind is not so active. And that settledness helps the heart to open up. A third quality of the practice is that there is a kind of purification that goes on, which Spring talked about, we've talked about a few times, that some of what stands in the way of metta becomes noticed. Some of it surfaces as the hindrances or the difficult energy. Some of it is on deeper levels. Some of it may surface as judgment of others or self-judgment or fear. So there's a powerful process of purification that occurs. And there's also a way as we go more deeply that we start to touch our radiant depths. And the metta practice supports that. And we have moments where we seem to touch what is deeper, where all of the busyness falls away. And there's something there that's quite simple and beautiful. Just that the very basic warmth and kindness. And we touch that more and more as we practice. We practice like that, those processes occur, and we train in this kind of protected environment, and then we bring it out into the world. We bring it out into our lives. Keeping the periods of training, because the periods of training are very, very crucial to have the time to develop this this kind of metta. So this first quality of leading with the heart is a wonderful aspect of metta practice. It's like we meet experience more and more with the heart. And for me, this has been a really crucial aspect of metta practice. Um, I think I, even though I think I have a very uh, kind of kind and open heart, and I, I could really start to, I think I started to get to, know this more, you know, as a teenager, when I found that I was one of the few people who cried during driver ed movies. (laughs) And later, you know, later at movies, you know, this wasn't, you know, we, you know, the conditioning as you know, for a good part of the last period of time for boys and men is not to cry and so forth. And there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of conditioning. I haven't talked so much. There's a lot of cultural conditioning related to metta and related to the expression of metta. I think it's no coincidence that we probably, we uniformly for metta retreats have 80% women. Every retreat, every retreat is like that. And there's, you know, there, there's a lot of, there are a lot of cultural forces that make the expression of metta hard, both for men and women. It's different, I think, different kinds of conditioning For men, it's really that to express vulnerability is often taken to be a sign of weakness. To express kindness uh, may go against the view that you have to be strong. Nice guys finish last, right? And so forth. So there's a lot there. And I was certainly part of that conditioning. And, but I could, I I knew that there was some kind of, kind heart there. And the metta practice has been really helpful to 
bring that out more so it could really manifest. Um, to have this training. I think it is a training in learning to lead with the heart because what are we doing? We're simply saying each moment, where is my heart? Where is my kindness? Where is my wishing well? What stands in the way? We're moment by moment going there and seeing what happens. And so it's a beautiful training in that, you know, and, you know, I, I think of other ways that this uh, quality of leading with the heart has been manifested because it's really a, almost a kind of devotional quality. You know, whatever happens in life, I will intend to lead with my heart in easy situations, in challenging situations. It's a real practice, you know. Obviously, in challenging situations, there's a whole art form and a lot we could say, maybe we'll say it in a few days, about how to have that kind heart be there in challenging situations, right? You know, I think of someone like Dr. King who manifested continually the intention to love in the midst of even of violence or of very difficult situations. There's a passage from one of his talks where he keeps saying, I have decided to love. Some of you may know that passage. That repetition of that intention, I will lead with love no matter what's happening. And it's a practice. It's not like I say, I will lead with love. Okay, next, (laughs) next topic. It's rather, it's an intention and we practice in order to strengthen that that capacity. Or uh, Julia Butterfly Hill once said that with every action I ask, is it coming out of love? That's the spirit of metta, right? Just to ask that question. Asking the question doesn't mean that we're totally together about that, but it's the asking of the question. It's having, and again, it's coming back to the way that intention is so crucial for metta practice. An intention means, again, um, in, the, in the words of the poet T.S. Eliot, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. We do our best and we let it be what it is. That's really the spirit of metta or bringing metta into our lives. And of course, we do that as a community so we can really, can really uh, compare notes. In that longer metta retreat that I was talking about, which was I think about seven years ago, about five weeks of metta practice, and I think what was most profound for me from that practice was the quality of leading with the heart that came out. There are all sorts of things. I was working with concentration practices and their interesting experiences and so forth. But I think what was most profound for me came because there was so much of the repetition of metta that after a while, maybe this is the case for you, it soon became really clear when there was not metta. In other words, when I would be, you know, in the dining hall and make a judgment, that person went back for seconds again. (laughs) The dining hall does give opportunities for metta practice. Or the hall does too, you know. I mean, you know, admittedly, there's not much happening on these retreats, so the mind really could go in all sorts of directions and find the smallest things to be irritated about, right? Have you noticed? (laughs) And so 
uh, for me, just to notice the moments when my mind was not with metta, I found that I wanted to, for each of those moments, come back. And, and if I had judged someone to say, oh, you get four metta phrases right now, <laughs> you know? And, and there was a, that was the practice that sort of emerged. One of the beautiful things about retreats, there's a lot of creativity and sort of practices develop and there's just, um, there's a way that we are in this beautiful inquiry and things emerge. And for me, it's just very simple practice. Whenever I noticed myself off, I would come back with four phrases for a given individual. It's almost like making amends, you know? And you can do that in daily life. Uh, and then even more so what started to surprise me was even when I would make a comment about someone that wasn't even judgmental or negative or harsh, when I would just see someone, I would notice, oh, that person's limping. And when that comment didn't come with metta, that felt off. That was interesting, right? Because it wasn't in some obvious way a problem, but that was my experience that I wanted to lead with my heart in those moments as well. So whenever that happened, I also came back with four phrases. And so that's really, that's really where our practice goes, that kind of leading with the heart. A second aspect that I want to talk, I think briefly about is the, um, is the quality of concentration. Let me see where this is. As we've, as we've mentioned, metta practice is a kind of concentration practice. It's, it's a, by concentration, we're translating samadhi. And it's actually a better translation would be unification of mind, heart, and body. There's a beauty in our metta practice because we're only doing one thing. And there can be sometimes a challenge there, a frustration, but we are staying just with one practice over and over again, just the calling forth of the kind heart, moment after moment. And there can be a beautiful simplicity of that. When you, one gets into it uh, more, you know, when we stay with the practice more, there can be a profound peace and resting because the mind becomes basically still. What's really interesting when we stay more with metta practice, it's as it were the phrases start to operate beneath the threshold of conscious awareness almost, beneath the usual discursive mind. It's like right now we're cranking up the engine. You know, those old cars that you have to crank up the engine and there's a lot of cranking, it's very conscious. When the metta gets going, it's more like the engine after the cranking and it's happening, and sometimes the phrases are going, and the the emphasis can be more on the heart feeling. And it really is happening, and the mind is almost still, even though the phrases are going. It's quite something, it's quite interesting. There can be a peace. Uh, The philosopher Kierkegaard once said, purity of heart is to will one thing. It's like we're here, and we're only intending kindness. We're only intending metta. And there can be a way that we rest. You know, as we develop in concentration, the 
there comes to be a greater steadiness of mind, greater ease. It can open up to bliss in the mind and body and heart. There's a stillness. And it can be quite, uh, quite wonderful as the concentration gets deeper. And so here, as we're developing in that concentration practice, I want to just mention a few sort of tips for what is helpful to develop that concentration a little bit more. We have to somehow have a combination of, uh, of sort of being active with the phrases, with a kind of letting go of the results, something like that. It's a combination of profound effort with profound letting go. And that's really the essence of concentration or this unification of mind. Some things that are helpful is sometimes a practice I sometimes do, particularly when you're right in the middle of the retreat, is to appreciate the mysterious element of how openings occur, of how this process occurs. Sometimes I'll just sit at the beginning of a session and say, I will just open to the mystery of how this is working. And that for me helps a lot just to keep going without thinking, I have to get this, I have to get this, it has to go in this direction, I have to get this level of concentration. So that being with the mystery has often been very helpful for me. It can help with the letting go quality. And there's also, I'll mention one aspect of concentration from the more the proactive aspect of uh, concentration, which is sometimes we have to be quite disciplined if we're getting into the same repetitive thought that we've been getting into all day long, we can be firm and just say no. You know, if, we're, if we find ourselves having the same area, I see some heads nodding, right? If we're getting into financial discussion number three or relationship issue number two or difficult encounter that happened two days before the retreat. And of course, important, to resolve those, but if we find ourselves constantly ruminating, some firmness is appropriate to really say, no, I'm not going there. And that helps with the deepening, helps with the concentration. So a little bit about purification. We use that word, and if that word is not so helpful for you, you can use a word like like, uh, transformation. But what it really refers to is, on the one hand, we touch a a kind of purity in ourselves, this purity of the kind heart. We touch that more and more. On the other hand, we um, witness that which stands in the way of the good heart, the pure heart. We notice that more and more. And metta retreats, very interestingly, often have a lot of purification. You know, we can have um, swings of emotion. We can have intense dreams. Anyone have an intense dream last night? Yeah. People have come to me sometimes in the morning and said, last night I was an axe murderer. Does that mean I should drop metta? (laughs) And they just happen like that. You know, we find a little bit, actually a little bit more in these retreats, metta retreats, than in mindfulness retreats. There are, there are these swings. There, it's a little more volatile, maybe because it's touching the heart area. It's touching that, that heart. And we, um, 
we're really invited to be with all of that process, to, to see what comes up, to notice what's being called. And it may be, there may be, as we sit, there may be sadness or grief that occurs, you know, as we've, as we've looked at some. We may be really connected with that kind heart and there may be some part of our life which is out of alignment and there can be confusion or uh, despair or there can be self-judgment and so forth. And that's a normal part of the process. And those things come up and we can work with them. We can work with them. I've been writing a book for the last uh, number of months on transforming the judgmental mind. And I sometimes joke that I'm not making that good progress. And if I had done less inner work with the judgmental mind, I'd be judging myself more harshly and I'd be making better progress. <laughs> but I'm content. <laughs> but it's, a, it's an area that really comes up a lot in retreats in general and in, 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 in our culture. You know, I think it's, it's, for me, when I work with people, it's probably, it's definitely one of the top three issues. It may be number one whether judgment of self or judgment of others. How many of you had some self-judgment or judgment of others come up today? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very strong issue. And um, when I work with people, I say you have really the, you want to start with two core tools. The first is mindfulness to really track it, track the judgment. So that's part of what you can do. Just notice when they're there and name them. And the other is metta and to really ease the heart and have some way of holding the whole process. Maybe I'll talk more about that later in the retreat, more about judgment, because it's a very, it's a powerful energy that comes up and we can really work with, work with judgments here, noticing them, bringing metta to ourselves, uh, seeing the process. There's a lot more I could say about how we could, can work skillfully. For right now, I think just to notice that they're there and just come back to the metta. If there's metta, if there's uh, judgment towards self, the practice of metta to self can be wonderful. And some people actually in metta retreats just focus on metta to self the whole time. And it can be quite powerful. Sometimes when we have very strong judgment of self, we have to really focus first on metta to others and get the metta energy going more strongly before we come back to metta to self. So let me just finish with a few comments. And I should say that we can also, we leave, we leave some of the time tomorrow morning for any questions or reflections related to the talks. We have time in, in the morning. So I wanna just end with uh, talking about some of the ways that as the meta practice develops, we touch something that's deeper. We touch a quality of our being that is beneath the judgment, that is uh, deeper than the hindrances. And that again really is our birthright that we I think have all known at certain, certain moments, but metta practice really helps us to touch that what we might call that radiance of the heart and live from that more and more. That's why we do this, right? Live from that more and more In the teachings of the Buddha, 
it was said that there's a quality of our being in our depths, which is said to be brightly shining and is connected with metta. And a lot of images of light are used to talk about that quality. Uh, You know, we use words like radiance, the brightly shining quality, and there can be a, a luminosity in our being with metta. And again, I think we all have had experiences of that. That's the, that's Karen age seven's, you know, the lights coming through the eyes, right? There's something there. And it's said also, one of the sayings of the Buddha is that the liberation by metta, the liberation of the mind and heart by metta shines like the moon. There's a quality of that shining. And that's said to be the birthright. That's said to be there even for people who are acting unskillfully. It's said to be universal. And it's there. And ultimately, again, this was the basis for the nonviolence of Gandhi and King. They said that even in the oppressor, there is a good heart. We could say that heart of metta. And that if we are skillful enough, we can act in ways in which that other person can hear and that heart gets activated. That was, that was the understanding. So it was a basis for seeing social change, not as defeating an enemy, but as reconciliation around the commonality of the deep heart. It's a vision, it's a vision that we can, we can work with. I'll just end with, let me see, I'll end with a poem. Maybe I'll end with one story and one poem. And the story, the story is one I heard just a few months ago. And this is a story I heard from uh, Leslie Grant. And she is a teacher of uh, mindfulness and metta to elementary school students. All through the Bay Area, all sorts of elementary school students are learning metta. And in their, in their uh, approach, uh, they worked with very young kids, five, six, seven, eight. And Leslie tells the story of one young boy who is six, who had a very difficult family situation. There was quite a bit of violence and he was hitting a lot of the other kids. And um, initially when she was working with the kids with metta, she would ask them, what color is your metta? And his answer initially, my metta is gray. And he was asked, um, is there anything that you love or anyone that you love? And he said, no. You know, so there was, there was a lot there, you know, you know, perhaps trauma, very difficult circumstances. Then a few days later, he came back with a little bit of excitement and said, I think I love my dog. And he practiced, started practicing metta, uh, initially with the dog, metta towards the dog, was his, maybe his benefactor or his dear friend. And he practiced and they would, um, Leslie gave the kids beeswax, which they would hold in their hands. And she told them that when the beeswax starts melting, you know that the metta's working. And he came back one day and he was really excited because in the session they had just had for metta, he said, the beeswax is melting. This is working. The metta is working. And he said, I really love my dog. And 
he kept on going and there actually were behavioral changes. He stayed with the metta, with the beeswax. And this was, this was one change over a number of weeks, you know, with a person with very difficult circumstances. So it points to how metta can actually uh, awaken that radiant heart, even in very challenging situations, even in very difficult situations. So here's, here's a poem. This is actually from the Sufi tradition, so not from, uh, but it's really about the spirit of metta. This is from Hafiz. I'll, I'll end with this. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny, is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely burst you wide open into an unfettered blooming new galaxy, even if your mind now is a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. You were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. Let's just sit for a moment. Let this settle. A life-giving radiance will come. Look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. So thank you for your kind attention. And we'll have now a, a period of walking for a half hour, very beautiful time of day. And we'll come back at nine and spring will be leading us uh, towards the end of that nine o'clock sitting. In uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.